Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Let's bow our heads and hearts as we pray. Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Our gracious Father, we ask that you give us this day, this moment, our daily bread. The bread that we need so our lives may be turned around, so that our lives may be mended and our hearts healed, so that we might be refreshed and be strengthened in our faith, that we might be equipped for the work of ministry in our front lines. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One day, an elderly couple in their 80s was sitting on a bench, reminiscing about the good old days. Grandma turned to Granddad and said, Honey, do you remember when we first started dating and you used to just casually reach over and take my hand? Granddad looked over at her, smiled, and obligingly took her hand, aged hand, in his. A few minutes later, with a wry little smile, Grandma pressed a little further and said, Honey, do you remember how after we got engaged, you'd sometimes lean over and suddenly kiss me on the cheek? Granddad leaned toward Grandma and gave her a lingering kiss on her wrinkled cheek. A few minutes later, growing, growing bolder still, Grandma said, and I can see a few anxious looks, where is this going? Especially Sue, she is going, oh, don't embarrass yourself, honey. Well, you have to keep listening to the story, won't you? This is what Grandma said. Honey, do you remember how after we were first married, you kind of nibble on my ear? Well, Granddad at this point slowly got up from his chair and went into the house. Confused, Grandma said, honey, where are you going? Granddad replied, to get my teeth. (laughs) All of us appreciate a good story that celebrates the beauty, the longevity, and the triumph of love with the lived happily after ending, don't we? We're swept off our feet by romantic stories. Millions of songs, books, plays are about love and romance. One entire book of the Bible, the Song of Songs, is dedicated to romantic love. Why is this? This is is because our longing to love and our longing to be loved is an integral part of the human experience. That is by God's design. Because God in his very nature is relational, humankind created in his image is also relational. We have been built for relationship with God and with people. It follows that in the most central part of our makeup is a longing for relationship, to give love and to receive love uh, with God or with people. Jesus confirms this by telling us that the two greatest commandments upon which all other commandments hang is to love God and to love others. So no surprise here as a number of studies have shown, including the Harvard Grant study, a 75-year longitudinal investigation into what accounts for a fulfilling life. 
that strong relationships are consistently the strongest predictor of happiness. George Valiant, the director of the Harvard Grant Study, makes the conclusion that the two pillars of happiness are love and the other is finding a way to cope with life that doesn't push love away. The experience of love in relationships is key to our well-being. However, one of the points that we have made in our sermon series based on the, on the book by Kyle Eidelman, Gods at War, Defeating the Idols that Battle for the Throne of Our Hearts, has been that anything in life, especially the good things in life, when they become more fundamental than God to our happiness, to our meaning in life, identity, it's an idol. Romantic love is a good example of this. Now, romantic love is a good thing and has always been celebrated in song and in uh, story in our culture, but it has been inflated to ridiculous proportions as the great quest and obsession, something we must have, otherwise we will be miserable and incomplete. And when we make romantic love essential to life, then it assumes godlike status in our lives. It is interesting that much of what we think as romantic love is actually an invention of Western culture. It didn't take hold until the Middle Ages. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a piece called The Allegory of Love where he shows how French medieval poets and singers popularized the hearts and flowers notion of love between a man and a woman. Lewis went further and made the assertion that this development had a great impact much larger than the Protestant Reformation. It made us believe that the great purpose in life is the pursuit of an emotional, dramatic, passionate, romantic love. It's the notion that you are nobody, that you're incomplete until you find someone who loves you. One of the most romantic lines has to be from the 1996 movie, Jerry Maguire, starring Tom Cruise. Uh, made $273 million from a budget of $50 million. So it was a box office hit. Most people remember the line, show me the money. You know, one of his clients got him to say it over and over the phone if he wanted his, uh, his business. Show me the money. But there's another equally famous line. Jerry, Tom Cruise's character, uh, he plays a successful sports agent. And those of you who don't know about the movie, let just give you a brief uh, synopsis. So he's a sports agent, very successful, who, who has a moral epiphany about the industry and the, and the corruption and, and the unethical sides of, of the industry. So he goes independent when he's fired from his firm after sharing his epiphany with his colleagues and executives. He's followed out the door by another character, his secretary, played by Renee Zellweger. There's a moment toward the end of the movie where Jerry has another epiphany. He goes to Selweger, Zellweger, and on his knees with tears-filled eyes, quivering lips, he utters, you complete me. To which she replied, you had me at 
hello. You know, very moving, you know, I, I have to confess, you know, I got a bit teary in that segment. Oh, you complete me, but you had me at hello. Now, with some tweaking of that line, we can apply it, can't we, to anyone in our lives, like our parents, our children, our friends, of course, our spouses, where we live for their love and approval in order to feel complete and whole. I've heard parents say about their children, my children are my life. I live for them. Now, whether it's you complete me or they are my life, those are very unwise words to say because it implies that you're incomplete without them. And secondly, it places a huge expectation on them. You're saying to them, I want you to do for me only what God can do for me. See? No one can complete you. Your children cannot complete you. Your husband cannot complete you. Your spouse's present or future cannot complete you. No one. And that's what happens when we make the created into the uncreated. When we make something that's good into the ultimate, that's what we do. We place God-like expectations on human beings to do only what God can do, and you only end up disappointing yourself, and you only, you only end up crushing uh, those that you look to for that kind of love and approval with expectations that they will never be able to meet. And thirdly, what happens when your spouse leave you through divorce, through conflict, through death? What happens when your children leave you to start a family or leave you through death, through sickness, through an accident? What happens to your world then when you say, you complete me? Without you, I'm only half a person. What happens when your friends unfriend you or when your bosses sack you or when you're when the company that you worked for for 20-odd years decide to let you go, you're no longer important to the company. See, while the longing to love and be loved is by God's design, look carefully at Jesus' commands, Jesus' two greatest commandments. Loving God must and always come before loving others. That is the order. Loving God must come before loving others. It's like buttoning up, buttoning up your shirt. If you get the first button wrong, then every other button will be out of whack. Eidelman writes, and I quote, Our relationship to the Father is more basic to who we are and to why we have been created. We're intended to love our children, our parents, our siblings and spouses wholeheartedly, but always in the context of our primary foundational love for God. Worship is for God alone. He must be our deepest love. Actually, He must be the source of every other love. For only when we love God properly can we begin to love others properly. According to the Ten Commandments, we are to honor our parents. 
but we are to worship only the Lord our God. And Jesus spells this out very, very clearly in Matthew chapter 10, verse uh, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And you can add other things following father and mother. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The other thing to note about the two greatest commandments is that they're inseparably linked and connected to one another. What do I mean? It means that our vertical experience of God's love will impact our horizontal relationship, our horizontal experience of human love. A horizontal experience of human love will also impact our vertical experience of God's love. Now, Shannon's story illustrates this principle well. Sharon was a tomboy since childhood. She saw herself as a living and walking mistake. She figured that if God made her, that when God made her, he had put a boy into a girl's body. There were reasons for this, but the most significant of all was that she had been sexually abused by a person of trust when she was a young girl. It scarred her, to put it mildly. Different people process such a horrible experience in different ways. For Shannon, she concluded that the very fact that she's a girl makes her a target in the future. So if she stopped behaving like a girl, she'd be safe from predators. You can see how she reasons that out. So she decided to toughen up and be a tomboy. See, I'll, be, I'll behave more like a boy. Then men will find me unattractive. Potential abusers will not touch me. She wore her hair short, hung out with guys playing sports. She became sarcastic and assertive. All masks to conceal the depression and confusion she felt beneath the facade. When she hit puberty, she got further confused because the boys who used to hang out with her when she was in her teens and didn't mind the, you know, roughing and tumbling, found her tomboyish persona no longer attractive. They started taking notice of girls who painted their nails and put, out, uh, put in a lot of time uh, looking nice and attractive. The feeling that she was a mistake, the feeling that she was a misfit was entrenched further. And thinking on it further, she realized that what she craved was love, to give it and to receive it. If she experienced love, she would no longer feel shame and worthless. Like many adolescents, she sexualized these feelings in her heart. She reached back to her time when she was abused, to the time when she was abused, and formed the idea that if she was going to get attraction, if she was going to get love, if she was going to find uh, attention that she craved, it will have to be through sex. She will have to offer herself on the altar of sex 
and make herself available to boys. And that's what she did. And consequently, she was used by a string of men who used a body and then dumped her. Her craving for love and acceptance was so strong, she even turned to her own gender. Since throwing herself at boys didn't fill the void in her heart, she was going to turn to women. She didn't act on her, on her feelings, but instead she pursued it through pornography. Nothing, 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 nothing that she tried filled the void in her heart until she turned to God. Human love had become an idol for Sharon. And idols are ruthless masters. And they never give you what you are desperate for, but the very opposite. That's the nature of idols. It makes demands on you. It says that you must give and give and give and give. But you get very little, if anything, from that relationship with that idol. An idol will eat you out, eat you from the inside out. Keller writes, quote, Making an idol out of love may mean allowing the lover to exploit and abuse you. And it may cause terrible blindness to the pathologies in the relationship. And we see that, don't we? In relationships where, where women, a majority of women, are abused, and I don't mean sexually, but verbally, in an economic way, they, they keep staying in that relationship. And, and you might know people like that. And you've said to them, why don't you leave him? It, this is as good as it's going to get. At least he loves me. Yeah, he whacks me. But that's the price I have to pay, I suppose. All right? And that's what's happening here. That they're so desperate for love that they're hap not happy. They're willing to stay in a toxic, abusive relationship just so that they can get a little drop of love. I'm a monster of a man because a drop is better An adulterous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any discretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. And perhaps you've read recently about a grandmother, 49, who had an affair with her daughter's uh, husband. and split from a husband of 10 years that she had just renewed her vows to. Now, how do you explain for that? How do you account for that? They're the craving for love, you see. Her, husband was no, her husband's love was no longer enough. I want to feel vibrant, and that sense of vibrancy will come from getting love from a younger man. See, that's what it's all about. If a younger man is attracted to me, <gasps> I feel so good. It affirms me. It makes me feel valuable and approved. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. There's no other word to describe idolatry. That's a perfect line right there. There is a happy ending to Shannon's story. 
if you're not a part of a Life Together group, uh, you can Google the story, God's at War, Episode 3, okay? And, uh, and, and, and here, Shannon's, uh, the rest of Shannon's redemptive story, beautiful story. In Genesis, there is a story that illustrates how you can be enslaved to the pursuit of love. It is a story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. When Esau found out that Jacob had taken the blessing from him through deceptive means, Esau vowed to kill Jacob. And so Jacob had to flee for his life as a fugitive. He never saw his mom and dad ever again. His life was in ruins. His hope laid with his mom's family, taking him in, which they did. Laban, his uncle, gave him a job as a shepherd. While at it, he fell in love with one of his daughters, Rachel. Meanwhile, Jacob did such a good job, Laban decided to give him a promotion and said to him, name your wages, Jacob. And Jacob's answer was immediate, and it was one word, Rachel. Rachel is my reward. We pick up the story in Genesis chapter 29, verses 16 to 20. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and beautiful. You get a picture there, right? So what the writer here is saying is that whatever the eyes are, what the writer is saying, Leah was ugly. Leah was unattractive in contrast to Rachel, who had a beautiful figure. See? Leah was a liability to Laban. Rachel was an asset to Laban. And that is important as the story, as it's important point to remember as the story develops. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other men. Stay here with me. Jacob was so smitten with Rachel that he was willing to work for seven years for her, which was nearly four times more than the ordinary price for a bride. But we're told they seem like only a few days to him because he loved her. That's what love can do to you, right? After seven years, Jacob says something to the equivalent to Laban. I can't wait to have sex with your daughter. Give her to me now. Here we have someone overwhelmed with emotional and sexual longing for one woman. Why? Because Jacob never had his father's love or approval, because, ja uh, because, Jake, uh, because Isaac always favored Esau. His mother's love was probably manipulative, manipulative and controlling. Eventually, he lost that too. And Jacob was certainly a man who was ignorant of God's love and care. Jacob's inner emptiness opened him up to deception. You see, the unscrupulous Laban could see how lovesick Jacob was with Rachel and decided to take advantage. If you read the passage again, Laban's response was deliberately vague when Jacob asked if he could marry Rachel. Jacob heard a yes when Laban merely, merely said, 
I think it's a good idea for you to marry Rachel. I think it's a good idea for you to marry Rachel. To cut the long story short, Laban deceived Jacob into marrying the unattractive Leah because Leah was a liability. Marry off Leah, and that's out of, then the responsibility is no longer with Laban. <sighs> because I can always find a husband for Rachel, but Leah. So that's why he deceived Jacob, you see. Now, Jacob eventually married Rachel as well, but he had to work for another seven years for Laban. How could Jacob be so gullible and desperate? That's because Jacob's behavior was no different from an addict. Love and, and approval can function as a kind of, of drug to medicate ourselves and in the process distort reality and distort our reality. Rachel was not just a future wife. Rachel to Jacob was his savior. What's the saying that we have to describe someone who has fallen in love? He worships the ground she walks on. Don't we say that? He worships the ground she walks on. The whole thing ends up being a huge myth. Leah loved Jacob, but Jacob only loved Rachel. Undeterred, Leah was going to get Jacob to love her one way or another. She thought to herself, my attractive sister with a lovely figure is barren. She can't have kids. So, I am going to produce babies. I'm going to produce sons. And then my husband will love me. And then my, finally my unhappy life will be fixed. And this is what transpired in Genesis 29, verses 20, 32 to 35. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Then she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord, the Lord heard that I'm not loved. He gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me. Surely third time lucky, because I've borne him three sons. So he named him Levi. Things did not improve one iota for Leah. Jacob, the man she had set all her dreams and hopes on. Jacob, the man whose love she wanted more than anything else in the world, was in the arms of her sister in whose shadow she had lived all her life. Every day of her existence was like a dagger to her heart. And then we read in verse 35, there's a change. She conceived again, again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, I will praise the Lord. This time, I will worship the Lord Yahweh. So she named him Judah, and she stopped having children. Leah had faced rejection by her husband, 
and by her father. But then she finally stopped looking to them to meet her needs, looking to them to fill the void in her heart. And she turned to God instead. And you recognize the name Judah, don't you? In Matthew chapter 1, as we read the genealogy of Jesus, Judah was Jesus, one of Jesus' ancestors. So Leah produced a son who would later become an ancestor to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. When we turn to God with our broken hearts and dreams, he can make something beautiful out of it that exceeds our expectations and imagination. Remember, idolatry is not so much doing bad things as taking good things and turning them into ultimate things that you cannot live without, that you cannot do without. If there's anything other than God that is more important to your happiness, identity, meaning, and hope, it's an idol. And as I said before, they're ruthless masters. They will never give you what you're looking for, but the very opposite. So in closing, what's, what's the answer to idolatry, specifically the idolatry of love? It is, it is most certainly not by saying, all I need is God's love. <laughs> okay? All I need is God's love. I need to wean myself from the love I receive from human beings. That's not going to work because that's a violation of the second greatest commandment. God doesn't want you to love your spouses any less. God doesn't want you to love your children any less or your grandchildren any less. God doesn't want you to love your friends any less because that is not the answer to idolatry. Instead, God wants us to love him more. You get that? He doesn't want you to love people less. He wants you to love him more. And that's the application this week. Consider the question, what would help you love God more? What would help you love God more? The question is not, what must you do to demonstrate that you love God more? Okay? The question is, what would help you love God more? See, if the answer is loving God more and, and not loving people less, it's still abstract, isn't it? You know, well, you can't go home, okay, I'll love God more. Well, what does that look like? How, how does that happen? Let me give you two suggestions. The one, first one is, and, and there are many scriptures like this, but this is the one that we looked at last week. Psalms 18, verse 19. He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. And as we think about that, mull over that, meditate on that, may the Holy Spirit take that and woo us to himself. So much so that money will become money, the people will become people that our spouses will become spouses, that our children will become children, not gods. See? What would it mean for your love toward God to know that he delights in you? 
that you're the apple of his eye, would that change your disposition toward God? Would that change how you feel toward, how you feel toward God? Would that change how you approach God? Would that make you love him more? Another suggestion, recognize, similar to the first, recognize, rejoice in and receive the depth, the height, the breadth of God's love displayed on the cross for you and is always, who is always present with you through the Holy Spirit in good and difficult times, loving you absolutely. As this knowledge deepens in you, I would argue so will your love for him. When that happens, God's gifts and God's blessings will just be that. They will never replace God in your life because God is irreplaceable. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, you are fully present to the fact that our love is very fickle for you. When things go well in our lives, we love you more. We're drawn to you. We're attracted to you. We feel like we, we can do anything for you, and we want to do anything for you. Uh, but Lord, when things get tough, then our moods change. We withdraw from you. We pull ourselves away from you. And many times, Lord, uh, we, when this happens or when we lose our way, Lord, one of the big reason is because we haven't quite grasped the height, the depth, the breadth of your love. And that is one of the things that Paul the Apostle prayed for us in Ephesians 3. Lord, I pray that prayer over us, that you would help us by your Spirit comprehend the height, the breadth, the depth of your love. Because as we do, our love for you will be less fickle. Our love for you will be more faithful. Our love for you, it will still be imperfect, but the quality of it will be more faithful than what it presently is. So, Lord, as we undertake to wrestle with this question, what would help me love God more? Would you speak to us? Would you lead us? And perhaps things that we can do to help us focus on your love, to help us receive your love, and not just grasp it intellectually, but experientially, it becomes a reality for us. something we can taste. Because at the end of the day, that is what we're craving for, an enduring love, a love that is everlasting, that no human being can ever give to us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. 
please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.